0: This week on Making Contact.
1: There's no question that the human population has to be controlled. There's just absolutely no way that we can live in a sustainable world uh, with increasing human population.
0: Shrinking the world's population is one way to curb global warming, according to some environmentalists. And to make that happen, women need to be in control of their own fertility. But that focus is very controversial.
2: This focus on population really does put it back into this women are to blame for environmental degradation, which we reject.
0: On this edition, how environmentalism can lead down a slippery slope to population control and even anti-immigrant policies. Can an emerging movement for population justice save our planet while respecting women's rights? I'm Kyung Jin Lee, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information.
1: People talk about sustainability. The problem is that if the human population keeps growing, um, sustainability is but a, a hopeless theoretical construct.
0: Today, there are more than 7 billion people who inhabit the Earth. For at least the past two centuries, debate has raged about how many people the Earth can sustainably support.
1: In order for the human species and the biosphere to come into some kind of sustainable equilibrium, our population must stop growing and our consumption of non renewable resources must stop growing. There's no way that a finite biosphere can support an endlessly growing number of human beings.
0: That's Ben Zuckerman, a Sierra Club member since 1969 and a longtime environmental conservationist. Overconsumption of natural resources, mass famines, environmental catastrophes. These and other threats have spurred many governments to try and radically reduce the number of babies born throughout the 20th century. For most of the time humans have inhabited the Earth, the population grew at a slow and steady pace. It took until the early 1800s to reach the first billion. But since industrialization, the advent of vaccines and antibiotics, and increased sanitation practices starting in the late 18th century, the world's population has ballooned and is now at more than 7 billion. Many say that's just too much. Currently, China is the world's most populous country at 1.3 billion. Government officials enacted its controversial one-child policy in 1979 to better manage the resources each citizen would consume. As a result, China has drastically slowed down its growth rate from about six births per woman in the 1950s to 1.7 today. The government uses incentives, including offering longer maternity leave to parents who wait to have their only child. On the flip side, reports of hefty fines, forced abortions, and sterilizations have also been common. In total, 400 million births have been prevented through this policy, reducing the burden on the government and the environment. Zuckerman applauds China's efforts to reduce its population but he notes the country has also become the biggest greenhouse emitter in the world.
1: China is the worst enemy in terms of countries for the biosphere. China is is in the midst of sort of endless construction of more coal-burning power plants. So in terms of climate change, China is, is really a disaster for the Earth's atmosphere and the oceans because once the... Carbon gets into the oceans. It acidifies the oceans. And it's bad for the coral and, and for fishes.
0: Zuckerman says China also destroys rainforests, supports dam building around the world, and is taking resources away from those who need them more.
1: Because the Chinese have so many people to feed. They're buying up farmland in countries like Africa and maybe in Latin America, too, in order to ship food back to China. And the poor people in Africa definitely need that food to remain in in Africa but it's not going to happen because the Chinese are so powerful and relatively rich compared to the Africans this is not to say that the average or typical Chinese person is any worse than the anybody living anywhere else it's just there are so darn many Chinese that in order to satisfy all their desires um, they're just literally raping the biosphere, um, both on land and and in the oceans.
0: But Jade Sasser, an incoming women's studies professor at Loyola Marymount University, points out that China isn't the biggest culprit and says the argument that population control practices help the environment is a fallacy. The U.S.
3: still emits more greenhouse gases per person or per capita. The average woman in China has 1.7 children that rate is continuing to go down. So there are definitely other interventions that should be implemented in China, including the development of alternative energies. China right now is the leading country in the world in developing alternative energies. Um, Population control has been in place there for four decades and it is not
0: a successful environmental intervention. Meanwhile, population growth in India, the second most populated country in the world, has also slowed considerably in the past 50 years. But alarm bells continue to ring.
1: According to the projection made by the government, over the last 100 years, India's population has seen a five-fold increase and is expected to surpass that of China by 2050. While India's population grew by 1.4 percent over the last five years, China witnessed only a 0.6% population growth.
3: We learned from a census 10 years ago that India had more than a billion people, but now results of the latest census say India's population has gone way up by 180 million. That's like adding the entire population of Russia, and then some, in just 10 years.
0: India's population of 1.2 billion is expected to balloon to 1.6 billion by the middle of the century.
1: If India continues at the existing pace, its population will increase to 1.61.38 billion by 2050, with very serious consequences on sustainable development of the country.
3: Unless there's a huge paradigm shift in planning towards realistic planning based on what is available and a huge control on population, there will be no water. There will be no food. We are losing more and more land to uh, global warming.
0: The government is tackling population growth through pilot programs providing cash incentives for those that have fewer children. India has tried measures to cut its population through voluntary and forced sterilization programs. More than 8 million men and women were sterilized in the mid-70s. Many were coerced, forced and unwitting victims. But this practice created a huge public backlash. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was ousted from power, and the people developed an aversion toward family planning. But in some areas, incentives and coercive measures to reduce the number of births are slowly becoming standard practice once again. In Satara, a city in southwestern India, couples are being offered about $100 to wait to have their first child. In the state of Rajasthan, women are offered cell phones and a chance to win a car if they agree to be sterilized. Such government policies have been repudiated by women's rights activists. Lori Mazur, the author of A Pivotal Moment, has been an environmentalist and reproductive health activist for 20 years.
4: I think that uh, coercive population control programs are not only just, you know, dead wrong, an egregious violation of, of human rights and bodily integrity, it's completely counterproductive. There's always a backlash. You can't do that to people. It's completely wrong, it's misguided, um, and it's unnecessary.
0: So where did the idea of slowing population growth come from? In the late 1700s, an English economist named Thomas Malthus believed there would come a time when there would be too many people to feed compared to the availability of food. To counter the inevitable calamity from famine, war, or disease, Malthus supported regulation of birth rates, especially for poor people, as he saw the lower classes as a waste of resources. Malthus's idea that poor people's reproduction threatened the rich lived on for the next 200 years. In the 20th century, various programs to reduce undesirable populations became popular, and international organizations, including the United Nations and USAID, began to focus on the rapidly escalating population in third-world countries. In the U.S., Indiana became the first state to pass a sterilization law in 1907. Eventually, more than 30 states would follow suit. Lori Mazur.
4: Back in the 1960s, uh, the international family planning movement was launched, uh, mostly in response to concern about population growth. It was the time of Paul Ehrlich's
0: population bomb. Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich published his controversial book in 1968. Like Malthus, Ehrlich predicted global apocalypse unless birth rates were drastically reduced. None of his predictions came to pass. But Ehrlich's doomsday scenarios helped popularize the movement and spurred sterilization programs in the U.S. and around the world. In 1976, U.S. Senator James Aborzik of South Dakota commissioned the Government Accounting Office to conduct a study.
1: Somebody came to me and said, there's some sterilization going on of Indian women. Uh, I publicized that. I had hearings on it. Can you remember what the findings were? The findings were that there was indeed sterilization going on. The report
0: found four federal healthcare centers in the Southwest sterilized more than 3,400 Native American women within a three year time period. Activist Ward Churchill. Based
1: on the documents that uh, were secured, By virtue of the illegal acts of the American Indian Movement, Women of All Raid Nations warned that organization analyzed the
0: documents and they concluded on the basis of the evidence they had that it was about 42% of the overall female population of childbearing age were prevented from birth. Not only involuntarily, but in a number of cases unwittingly, they were never even informed. Other countries, including Bangladesh, Peru, and Sweden, have also enacted widespread coercive and forced sterilization programs. In the case of Peru, more than 200,000 women were sterilized between 1996 and 2000. Here, two victims tell their stories to Al Jazeera TV.
2: When I woke up, I felt a pain here. There was a wound covered with gauze. When I screamed, the doctor scolded me. Look, you Indian. Do you want to keep breeding like a pig? You should be grateful to President Fujimori for sterilizing you for free. I tried to get out, but we were locked in.
3: They tied us up like sheep.
0: But by the mid-1990s, the backlash against coercive sterilization methods also began to gain momentum. Activists organized to reform population policies with some success. In particular, the 1994 UN International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt, proved to be the turning point for reformists. The final agreement, known as the Cairo Consensus on the Reproductive Health and Rights of Women, specified that coercion has no part to play in determining the success of family planning programs. This conference also brought women of color activists from the United States together. After analyzing women's reproductive health through a human rights and social justice lens, these activists created a new movement, says Professor Jade Sasser.
3: So they developed this approach, which argues for basically three things. One, the right to have the children that you want to have. Two, the right not to have the children that you don't want to have. And three, the right to parent the children that
0: you do have. The approach she talks about is what we now know as reproductive justice. Sasser says advocating for population control became unacceptable after the 1994 UN conference. The ardent population control proponents have largely softened their message to fit the reproductive justice model. They have also reframed their focus. Now, while the end goal is still the same, the emphasis is on empowering women's health and education. Longtime environmentalist Ben Zuckerman says, every contemporary generation is dependent on their ancestors to be good environmental stewards. And so women who previously bore many children acted irresponsibly to future generations, leaving us and our descendants to pay the price. Zuckerman thinks if women have more choices and resources, they will make the right decisions.
1: The low status of women in various countries around the world is the single most important contributor to basically out-of-control population growth. That is, there's no real signs of world population growth declining at any really noticeable rate, uh, according to UN projections and whatnot, for many decades yet into the future. The most important way to turn things around would be to raise the status of women educationally, economically, politically. Um, Because once women are able to control their own lives... Then everybody knows all around the world their fertility goes way down because they realize they have more interesting things to do than just be a baby machines, basically, from the time, you know, they're 15 or 20 years old till they're in middle age.
0: Zuckerman says rich countries can help by providing resources for family planning, contraception, and education. He also supports governments providing certain types of incentives or disincentives for women to have fewer children.
1: There are definite policies our government could introduce, such as changing the tax structure to favor having small families rather than large families. For example, a couple or a family could get a a tax break, certainly for their first child and maybe their second child. But after that, there just should be no tax incentives to have more children than two.
0: But not everyone accepts that frame. Elizabeth Barajas-Roman, policy director for the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, says blaming environmental problems on women, especially women of color, and the number of children they have allows for the real culprits to go unrecognized and unaccounted. If the
2: concern is about the environment, I would think that the focus should be on the kind of high-impact solutions, you know, the multinational corporations, the military, um, and their use of natural resources, both in in these countries and in the U.S. military, you know, which are just huge actors on environmental degradation. It would make more sense to focus on actors that have the biggest impact.
0: Almost 80 percent of U.S. emissions are caused by corporate, military, and government actions, according to a report by the Population and Development Program at Hampshire College. Zuckerman agrees the military is largely to blame for the environmental situation.
1: What we have to do is to stop spending so much money on wars and fighting with one another and just pissing um, resources and, and money down the toilet to build bombs and, and planes and ships for a war that hopefully will never be used. Instead, that money needs to be spent on shifting the world's economy uh, away from blind resource consumption, away from using fossil fuels and, and transitioning to wind and solar power, renewables.
0: But he also argues that reducing the world's population is another imperative way to bring balance back to our environment. So is there room for cooperation between reproductive justice and environmental activists? And how are immigrants connected to this debate? We'll be back with more in just a minute. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Back in the heyday of international population control, even environmental groups such as the Sierra Club enthusiastically embraced the notion that overpopulation was the main cause of environmental harms. The organization commissioned Paul Ehrlich to write the Population Bomb in 1968. He was also the keynote speaker for the club's annual Wilderness Conference in 1969. But when outward support for population control activities became taboo in the 1990s, former Sierra Club board member Ben Zuckerman says,
1: The Sierra Club changed its direction as regards of population, overpopulation, population growth.
0: Other environmental organizations and activists also began to back down on their positions and soften their message. But within the Sierra Club membership, Jay Sasser says controversy and debate on this topic ensued. About whether the organization should adopt an official
3: population policy focused on the U.S., a population policy that would come out against immigration to the United States um, as an environmental problem.
1: The... The club would no longer deal or talk about the number one cause of U.S. population growth, which is over-immigration and uh, the U.S.-born children of immigrants.
3: So the Sierra Club leadership and its membership have very firmly and strongly come out in opposition to creating those policies.
1: There were some Sierra Club members, including myself, who felt this was a very bad mistake as re- regarding environmental stewardship and environmental responsibility. And the Sierra Club must deal with population issues.
0: So Zuckerman and his allies created an affinity group called Sierrans for U.S. Population Stabilization.
1: And we tried our best through ballot initiatives, votes of the membership, and through getting people elected to the Sierra Club board of directors to change the Sierra Club's direction in regards to this issue of U.S. and world population growth.
3: Not all members and leaders are against having an anti-immigration policy for the organization, but the majority are against it, and that's the reason why there's no policy there today.
0: The Sierra Club declined numerous requests for an interview. While the organization may still feel skittish about its past ties to population control advocacy, in recent years, the Sierra Club and other major environmental groups have begun infusing social justice and reproductive justice concepts into their work on population issues. Jade Sasser.
3: So there is a network of environmental organizations, primarily based in Washington, D.C., that includes groups like the National Audubon Society, Uh, Population Action International, Population Connection, Sierra Club, of course, Isaac Walton League, and others who are focused on this justice-based approach to protecting women's rights, women's human rights, advocating for women's empowerment, and reducing population growth in the
0: process. The idea to bring reproductive Environmental and Social Justice Together to Deal with a Population Issue was presented in 2009 through a book titled A Pivotal Moment, Population, Justice, and the Environmental Challenge by Lori Mazur.
4: We're in really big trouble. There's new evidence that uh, we've already transgressed uh, certain boundaries that constitute kind of a safe operating space for humanity on, on the planet that we have crossed critical thresholds on, uh, well, on the climate, for one thing, and also on species loss. So the challenges we face are just extraordinary.
0: Mazur acknowledges the complex history of population politics and how the bad practices of the past have made it difficult for some environmental organizations to enthusiastically jump back into this issue. So to help bridge the gap between the environmental and reproductive justice movements and to increase funding for family planning programs, Mazur came up with a new idea she calls population justice.
4: Job number one is for those of us who live in the developed countries to dramatically reduce our consumption of the planet's resources. So we need to consume less People in the developing countries actually need to consume more on the whole in order to attain a a decent standard of life in many cases. Um, I think we all need to consume differently. We need to find ways to to meet uh, human needs at less environmental cost. And at the same time, I think we need to slow population growth.
0: Mazur says the largest generation of adults, 3 billion people is starting to come of age. And the choices these young people make with regard to childbearing will have a huge impact for future generations to come.
4: I believe that all people should have the means and the power to make their own decisions about childbearing. I don't believe in dictating optimal, you know, family or population size. But what we've seen around the world and over the years is that where women have that power, um, they do choose to have smaller families. And population growth does slow as a
0: result. While Mazer rejects population control policies, she does think slowing the population down is one tactic that will help mitigate environmental catastrophe.
4: What my program has focused on specifically is ensuring universal access to family planning and reproductive health services. Now, this is essential both as a matter of human rights and social justice, um, that it has enormous benefits for for women, for public health, for human development. And ensuring universal access will also help slow population growth so that we wind up near the low end of the population projections.
0: But activists such as Elizabeth Barajas-Roman remain skeptical about Mazur's approach, given the dark history of the population debate.
2: Even though the current research shows that women who are um, have higher education, make higher income, tend to have less children, to say that you are empowering women just for the sake that they have less children, we feel is highly inappropriate. We are very happy to hear this kind of attention to, you know, this inequalities, these underlying factors that contribute to problems that impact uh, women of color and immigrant women. The concern that we have with this idea around population justice as it's kind of being framed is the attention to so-called rapid population growth as still the goal to reducing that and and improving the environment. That link is what's most problematic for
3: us.
0: Professor Jade Sasser says while it's important to provide family planning programs...
3: I think it's important to de-link those programs from environmental sustainability programs because... Again, if we focus on the reproduction of poor women in Global South countries, then that lets a number of other more egregious actors off the hook. So if we're focused on the fertility of poor women in the Global South, we're not thinking about the emissions activities of the military, for example. We're not thinking about how international corporations pollute Um, and also continue to emit greenhouse gases. We're not thinking about the changes that we need to make in the ways
0: that we consume resources on a daily basis. Both Mazur and Zuckerman readily agree these entities, not women and their families, are responsible for the bulk of the environmental problems we have to deal with today. But they also see slowing the population growth rate as one way to reduce overall consumption. But for some reproductive justice advocates, like Elizabeth Barajas-Roman, there really isn't much room for cooperation. Yet. It may seem at the very
2: start there's a bit of convergence, but where it splits off is the end goal, um, in that if women's empowerment for the sake of just reducing population
0: versus women's empowerment for the sake of women's empowerment, and wherever that may lead. The world's population continues to grow by about 80 million every year. And by 2050, demographers project we'll have between 8 and 10.5 billion people on the planet. There are many who are working to keep that number down as low as possible to avert cataclysmic wars and famine. And still others who say population isn't the problem, but structural change is needed to alleviate poverty and social injustices. Some activists are trying to bridge that gap by bringing elements of both camps together to come up with creative solutions. Again, Professor Jade Sasser. There are many
3: who feel that this is a win-win approach that meeting women's needs for contraceptives will have environmental benefits slowing the rate of climate change for example slowing deforestation slowing you know the use of land use change for example in ways that are win-win for the environment and for women but for Sasser this approach continues to miss the mark the solutions are to advocate against militarization Uh, the solutions are to force corporations to develop alternative energies and alternative ways of fueling what they do but also i think we need to think a lot more about really really drastically reducing the way that we consume
0: and that's it for this edition of making contact Special thanks to the Mary Wolford Foundation for their support of this program. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Kyungjin Lee. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.